Welcome to Tender Rage with Sunny Adcock, the show for the outrageously audacious, the loudly passionate and the slightly delusional. Together with some of my favourite people, I hope to have new, inclusive and exciting dialogues that hold space for the anger and joy that come with coming of age. So brew a cuppa and have a listen as we keep the rage tender. like to acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation as the traditional custodians and knowledge keepers of the land and pay respects to elders past, present and emerging. I would also like to warn listeners that this episode contains references to racism, sexism, mental ill health, violence and police brutality. Welcome to episode four of Tender Rage. Today I'm joined by the lovely Adan Kotson, who is a freelance videographer and filmmaker. Adan and I met at uni and recently had to debate each other over whether or not Captain Marvel was a feminist movie. I was really curious to hear what his male perspective would be and was impressed with the way he dealt with issues of gender and power. Clearly, I had to invite him on the show. The following conversation was an exciting opportunity to discuss feminism and social power outside of my all-female echo chamber. Because we'll be talking about superhero films in depth, it goes without saying that there will be some spoilers. But I want to give a particular spoiler warning for the broader MCU films to date, especially the recent Disney Plus TV shows WandaVision and The Falcon and the Winter Soldier, as well as some DC properties like the 2019 Joker film. I'll also be upfront that during this conversation we'll be talking a lot in the heteronormative gender and sexuality binary, but we absolutely hope to unpack non-binary and trans issues in the media when we have a guest that can speak to that lived experience. Enjoy. Welcome Adan, how's it going? Good, I'm good, how are you? I'm good, I'm excited to have you on. Yes, I'm, it's my pleasure to be here. Thank you. I am going to ask a fun would you rather question. Okay. I'm trying to put into practice. I want to get my guests to kind of become super familiar with our audience. Um, so I want to do some fun little profile stuff. And at the end, I'm going to get you to switch it up and give a would you rather question for our next guest. So would you rather be put in a maximum security prison with the hardest of the hardened criminals for a year or a relatively relaxed prison where Wall Street types are held but for 10 years? Hmm. Interesting. I mean, I feel like one year is like probably the easier thing to pick just because it's less time. I mean, hardest of the hard criminals in prison, that doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, you're going to (laughs) be beaten up or, Mm. or anything like that. I think just from a time perspective, I'd rather be in the one year uh, prison. And I feel like you'd probably get exposed to some more interesting people with interesting Mm -hmm. stories. Uh, versus 10 years with a bunch of white-collar criminals. Mm-hmm. You feel like you could deal with the hardest of the hardest at lunchtime? <laughs> uh, we'd have to see. Have, maybe <laughs> maybe I would become one of the hardest true, of the hard. I mean, if true. I'm in the prison with them, That's I must true. have done something that, you know, warranted that treatment, right? True. You'd know friends in high places. Yeah. That's a very fair point. Okay. You're locking in that answer? Yeah, lock it in. Fair. All right. I think I'd have to say the same, actually. I could not stand to be in there for 10 years. And you know what? You just be a bad bitch when you come out. So yeah, I mean, imagine the stuff you'd miss in ten years. Yeah, it's like one year you come out and you're all like, "Yeah, I just spent a year with like the, that's so true the most tough people in the world." Yeah. <laughs> so for today's episode, we are going to speak about superhero stories and how they have responded to society's changing needs. I mean, you know, we're all super familiar with Marvel, whether we watch it or not, and they've basically like dominated the movie industry for like the last ten to twelve years people's experiences with franchises like Marvel, I feel like are so different across like how they grew up and gender. There's so many different things that play into it. And I feel like even now that it's going into television, like so many different people are accessing these characters in a different way than before. I watched all the Marvel movies as a kid and like enjoyed them um, and rooted for the characters, but didn't really get into sort of the Easter eggs and that sort of stuff until WandaVision actually came out, which for listeners who are unfamiliar came out just a couple months ago on Disney Plus as one of their sort of more bigger television series. But I'm curious as well, like how, as you grew up through the ages in terms of like enjoying Marvel with your friends and um, how your sort of relation to it changed as you got older. I don't know. It's always been something that I was... Uh, I've always been interested just in films and entertainment in general. Mm -hmm. Um, I can't say the same for my friends. Like, they were not always interested in the same sort of films. But if there was one thing that was always kind of a universal thing, it was, let's go see the latest 
Marvel mm-hmm. film. Let's go. Because they just have this universally enjoyable quality. They're funny. There's spectacle to them. And they're just easy to enjoy. They're not particularly heavy when it comes to ideas and concepts. And, you know, you go, you have a good laugh, you have a good time. And um, if you're a casual fan, you can still enjoy it. And if not, then there's plenty of elements for anyone. You know, if you engage with the fandom on a deeper level and you want to have those discussions, you can. My interest has drifted in and out as time has gone. But, you know, I've always admired how they've managed to keep it relevant and fresh too. Because you'd think after... 10 plus years of releasing films that you'd run out of ideas and your stories would get stale and boring. But what I found is that they've actually become more interesting and more of those unique ideas and characters and obscure elements from the comics have been pulled into these, you know, the mainstream of their entertainment in their TV shows and, and in their latest films as well. And I think they've been more confident. They've, they haven't had to adhere to these very formulaic stories that were kind of being told in the first phase of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, like, you know, the Thors and the Captain Americas and these films that are, they're fine. You know, they're they're good films, but you can see that they follow a very specific sort of trajectory versus these kind of more unique films like Thor Ragnarok or Guardians of the Galaxy, which are still very derivative of things within the, the universe and outside of it but they stand out within the context of Marvel. Definitely. Getting different directors and writers and perspectives on board has been really valuable to them, especially like going into television with WandaVision and the Falcon and the Winter Soldier, having more females behind the camera, more writers of color and different perspectives. And I think it's been interesting to see that the internet discourse has been really responsive to that. When I know for a long time, we've been sort of told that like, female superheroes don't sell or certain perspectives or certain secondary characters don't really fly with audiences as much. And it's been really interesting to see the way that the internet has responded to that. It's kind of a risk in a sense of like giving us more time with the characters can really pay off and be super interesting because you get to know them so much better, but it can also sort of almost show off how one dimensional characters are as well. If you don't use that time well or wisely we've just sort of finished the falcon and the winter soldier we had one division um what was your viewing experience like especially with the week to week format because i think that was really nice instead of having the typical let's upload it everybody binges it like cultivating that sort of anticipation and fan response online week to week i think was really to the benefit of the show's reception yeah i think especially with one division it really opens as a mystery it's this really perplexing sort of situation there's very little context and that anticipation of what is actually going on here really helped by breaking it up because there's so much speculation and so many theories and so much excitement to really find out and get answers and then this anticipation of what's going to happen next like who is who's behind this and you know so many questions um, at the forefront of that that really helped elevate that show and just keep this discussion high because really like when you think about it, WandaVision, like, it's so different compared to anything that has come out of the Marvel Cinematic Universe so far. I mean, that's just, like, bizarre, you know, like, this TV show evolving through the ages. But still, you know, it mm. was immensely popular and people were talking about it. And it's, it's because of that anticipation. Mm. Falcon and the Winter Soldier, I didn't really find that as much. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just because it's a different show, you know. I think, especially when it started, like people were not quite as excited mm-hmm. for it just because it, it's more of just like an action series or mm-hmm. it was being marketed as such. Yeah. And then as it went on, I think it got more and more interesting, especially with the, the character of John Walker. And I really mm-hmm. wanted to see where that was going and what that would lead to. But in general, I think that, you know, it didn't have that same mm-hmm. mystique about it that WandaVision did. But regardless, I mean, I still really appreciate and enjoy having a show that airs week by week because it gives you something to look forward to you know regardless of what the mystery is it's like oh i'm gonna catch a new episode of this thing instead of just binging it all in one day and forgetting about it in a week's time you take it week by week and it's this shared experience Mm -hmm. everyone kind of watches it around this time and then we talk and then we speculate and then we come back again the next week and see what was right about our assumptions and what was wrong definitely you get to sit with it and actually process it because i think that's you're so right about like watching it and then forgetting it. Every time you binge something, it's so great in the moment. And then you're like, actually, hang on. Do I need to go back and, and revisit it again? It's also just more realistic. I feel like, you know, obviously Marvel appeals to a wide range of people, but it's sort of beginner audiences. We're studying, we're in uni, we're busy. Like it's so much easier to just be like, you know what? This is my dedicated hour 
to watch this um, and to be entertained rather than feeling the pressure of like falling behind in discourse because you can't binge it in time. But I do think the difference between the two shows, like the way that they played with timing was really interesting. I feel like the pacing of The Falcon and the Winter Soldier was really interesting. It just, it felt a little bit off in some ways. Like I feel like that was almost a situation where we got six hours with the characters, which was amazing, but didn't necessarily reveal a whole lot or feel a lot was achieved. Whereas WandaVision, I feel like, even though the episodes are so much shorter, so much had happened. There was so much mystery. Like, it felt really risky. Like you said, it didn't feel like Marvel, um, but it felt even risky just for television in general, which I think, I don't know if it was to its benefit or to its detriment that they started with WandaVision and then The Falcon and the Winter Soldier because people are just obviously automatically going to compare them. But I think, yeah, it's it's interesting when you get to have more time with those people, and I think it'd be interesting to see how that then translates into when they do the movies versus the TV shows and how much they can tell within that time. Well, like, I don't know, like with WandaVision, it was, it didn't feel very character oriented in that Mm -hmm. first half of the season. I felt like it was very much building that suspense and and really provoking you to ask questions. But then once you, there was that episode where you don't really see Wanda and it's in the perspective of like uh, Agent Wu, I think his name is, and and Darcy and all of that. And then you kind of start to understand what's happening. I mean, you still have lots of questions, but it the pieces start to kind of fall together. And from then on, it kind of becomes your more standard Marvel deal. And then similar sort of thing with Falcon and the Winter Soldier, like that first episode or two are, are quite mm. action heavy. They felt a lot like I was watching a Marvel mm, film. Definitely. But I felt in both cases, as the shows went on, the TV feeling came through to me like mm-hmm. i felt more like i was watching a tv show mm-hmm. especially like falcon like it almost felt like this was captain america 4 mm. it was super high production value good action scenes um you had like the winter soldier theme music playing and stuff like it, it just felt very you know like that legacy of let's continue you know the same characters sharon mm-hmm. carter and, and bucky and all these things carrying through from and zemo as well and then um, as it went on, it was like, okay, this is kind of like just its own little episodic thing. Mm. And it's actually setting up Captain America 4. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and similar with Wanda is that, yeah, this is very much Wanda's little uh, moment in the spotlight. But it's also there to set up Wanda's sort of mm. driving factors, which will probably play into films later on. Yeah, it was cool that it felt like they were setting up a lot in this female told story like with the multiverse and just seeing like it feels like if you missed out on WandaVision you would have missed out on so much like the way that her character evolved from beginning to end was so different and I felt particularly like I felt like the storytelling was so much more what I consider female gaze in WandaVision like I love that Vision and White Vision spoilers for anyone who hasn't watched it you know they spoke with logic and they didn't necessarily have to have the might is right approach which obviously is unique to superhero films but I thought I would just give a quick definition of some concepts for our listeners. The male gaze, which a lot of us is familiar with, is a, a way of storytelling that sees sort of male perspectives exclusively behind and front of the camera and sees women or other secondary characters as objects rather than subjects. It is about looking and spectating rather than sort of viewing and being in feeling. Contrary to the male gaze, the female gaze, I believe, recognizes women's personhood and positions them as subjects rather than objects. It's still a super new concept and that a lot of people still contend what that involves. And I think maybe a deeper criteria needs to be established. But I feel like it's it's a lot more empathetic and intimate and it pays attention to women or other characters, desires and sensibilities. And rather than consuming or looking at a character, director sort of Joey Soloway said that we are in feeling with them, which I thought was a really interesting phrase of really sort of getting to understand the psyche of a character. And it doesn't sort of require the division or invisibilization of anyone's sort of fullness as humans. I felt like in consideration of that, to me, my experience watching Marvel is that like I loved obviously seeing the action scenes and rooting for the characters, but there was a lot of it that didn't, I mean, not that I necessarily need to place myself in all characters when I'm watching stuff, but I feel like whether it was sort of the online discourse or just sort of the macho-ness in the movies that made it that it was something that I watched and enjoyed casually, but never felt sort of fully engaged in fandom. I don't know if you can relate to this, Evelyn, um, but it was this thing of like, oh, you don't know enough about Marvel, so why are you watching it? Or like, are you just doing it because you want to impress the guys? Or like, you don't know as much as I do. You haven't read the comics. And so I sort of watched it casually because, of course, it was, you know, super relevant to pop culture and really fun. And like, I love watching action scenes and rooting for people. But I never sort of jumped 
on board into everything that was happening and you know seeing my younger brother his experience with it is so different and I learned a lot from him which has been really nice shout out to Grayson but I think in having a story that was so much more accessible because it felt more female gaze it really motivated me to go back and look at everything and I feel like I was really surprised on TikTok to see the reception of like so many guys being really excited about it which was so nice because you know prior to this like Black Widow was our sort of sole representation and you know aside from not necessarily loving how she was written like yes she's one of the main Avengers but she's she doesn't necessarily have her own power she's very much sexualizes very much the booty shots and you know the zipper being down that this was the first time it felt like oh my gosh this is someone that we could identify with who actually has some substance not to disrespect Scarlett Johansson but I'm interested like for example we had a cool discussion about Black Widow and even just the writing like how she's sort of used as this like ambiguous prop like love interest for different people like she has so much tension with so many of the male characters and I was surprised that you also picked that up as well so I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on that and how she differs from someone like Wanda. You're absolutely right like when she's first introduced, if I remember correctly, in Iron Man 2, she's kind of like almost like a threat to Pepper in a way. Mm. Like she's, you know, this like hot secretary or whatever it is. And then you find out later that she's a S.H.I.E.L.D. agent and all this stuff. So you've got a bit of tension between her and Tony. And then, you know, in Avengers, um, the first film, again, like she's just like that female character in the team. I just felt like they've just mishandled her character as they've gone on. Like they don't really know what to do with her. And then, you know, she was Steve's love interest for a little bit in the Falcon and uh, in so I'm, uh, yeah, Captain America the Soldier Captain America and the Winter Soldier which um sorry just this a bit of a tangent but isn't that what the Falcon and the Winter Soldier is now Captain yeah, America and yeah. the Winter Soldier like yep I also have cause of the fact that Bucky doesn't get a name change, but... <laughs> oh, well, hopefully season two will be like Captain America and the White Wolf. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, but still, like, now there's two Marvel yeah. things, Captain America and the Winter Soldier. Maybe it's like Captain America, the Winter Soldier yeah. and, and the Winter Soldier. Yeah. Oh, whatever. <laughs> Just throws me off. Anyway, um, and then especially in Avengers 2, I think that's where it was painfully obvious, mm. where they just didn't know what, like... They, you know, they wrote her as as a love interest for for Bruce Banner, which I just thought was like, like just so it felt really wrong to me. And and these things in the Marvel universe, like they're usually all right, but that really stood out like a sore thumb. I just didn't buy it. And she was so, you know, you just had these really uncomfortable scenes, like the one where they're at the party and she's the bartender for some reason. And then, <laughs> I hate and that then scene so much. <laughs> you know, it's terrible. And then he falls on top of her. Yeah. And then, um, and then later in the film when they're at Hawkeye's house and she's like begging him to have a shower mm. with her. And it's just like, it feels just so out of character and, mm. and, and really just you like, it just made me uncomfortable, mm-hmm. but I feel like recently things have improved in that department and she's kind of become more of her own thing. You know, you even see her almost taking up the mantle as like the leader of the Avengers in Endgame. I felt like she very much became her own thing. And and this is a testament to the writers at Marvel is like, even when they do slip up, they always address those things so that it is extra cohesive. Like they never try and retcon anything. It's always like this happened and we acknowledge it and we're moving on now, you know, and like you get those little moments of Hulk still being into her and, you know, like you get little exchanges between them in Infinity War. So it's like, yeah, we've acknowledged this happened, but we're moving on now. Mm-hmm. The fact that it's taken this long for her to get her own film is kind of a bit embarrassing. It's like sh- the character is dead and you're now making an origin film about her. Like what, mm-hmm. you know, where was this in, in, in phase one or phase two or whatever, you know, how come it's taken this long? How come we have to have a character like Captain Marvel who has had no appearances in this cinematic universe before one of the core members of the Avengers got her own film. It's a bit embarrassing, but, you know, at least it's happening. You know, I've always said, like, if they've got good stories to tell, then I'm, I'm all for it. Yeah, I think it's interesting that they killed her off sort of just as she was getting some more development. Like, I keep thinking about the fact that, you know, she's meant to be this really interesting and complex character. And then, you know, as we were saying, you know, that scene in Age of Ultron, like I just felt like pursuing that romance angle was the least interesting thing about her. And, you know, they have a moment where she speaks about the fact that she can't have children. And it was interesting that like, you know, she felt that that made her out to be a monster, which was really interesting. And, you know, obviously speaks to sort of wider notions around womanhood. But 
they didn't necessarily try and provide a counter argument to that. And I think it's then interesting that, you know, obviously she died instead of Hawkeye, which you could, you know, assume was sort of justified with, oh, he has kids, he has this or that, which I just thought was a really interesting choice the way that they handled that when she her story was just beginning and i don't know i personally felt like hawkeye had served his purpose but maybe that's <laughs> my bias um but I, here. yeah <laughs> can you tell i don't like hawkeye but how i feel is that when ant-man came out i kind of was a bit resentful which sounds a bit silly and like i actually only watched ant-man a couple days ago because i was like how do we have a superhero movie about a guy who can shrink down to the size of an ant before we have a female superhero, before we have a colored person, like before we have, you know, Black Widow, who is a main Avenger having her own movie, but we can have someone who shrinks down to the size of an ant. You know what I mean? Like this predated Captain Marvel and Black Panther, I believe. And so I just kind of, I felt a bit of resentment for Marvel about the fact that for so long it was like everybody else gets a story except for these very specific groups of people. And then obviously when Black Panther came and was like a huge success, it proved and, you know, WandaVision following in that footsteps as well that people really are interested in those stories. Yeah, it's interesting that that's the way you see it because, like, I absolutely agree Mm -hmm. with you. Like, I think that it is a shame that it's taken Mm -hmm. this long. But in the same way, when you really think about it, just from a, you know, like even just a marketing perspective, Mm -hmm. like a really corporate, like if you try to put yourself in their shoes, like the reason that Black Widow hasn't got her own film yet is to me the same reason that Hawkeye hasn't got his own film. It's just, you know, she's like, yeah, a main part of the Avengers, but she doesn't have powers. Mm -hmm. She's kind of just there and she's been established through these Mm -hmm. other sort of films same same as hawkeye you know Mm -hmm. as a background character and they're there to kind of support the the -hmm. team now it's gotten to a point where like it absolutely makes sense Mm -hmm. for her to have her own film and her own backstory and in in the same way that it now makes sense for wanda to be a sort of leading member with her own big Mm -hmm. story yeah well isn't that such an indictment on them that they didn't have a main character from the get-go that was female and or a person of color who was important enough or powerful enough to be worthy of the film yeah and so what did they have to do they had to create this captain marvel character who's all of a sudden the most powerful character and can beat the bad guy you know instantly and has no like flaws or whatever and it's just like out of left field in this mm-hmm. in the context of this universe which has taken so much time to really build up these forces all around the world and all mm-hmm. around the galaxy and and culminate in this big thing and all of a sudden there's just well this was here the whole time like mm-hmm. where was she when the earth got invaded the other 10 times you mm-hmm. know how come she's only rocked up now in, in yeah. endgame you know very much like last dish attempt to be like oh shit we haven't done this yet let's do it in time and maybe this is me being super cynical which I don't want to come across as because I am loving these sort of new diverse stories but it almost feels like they need our stories and us now because it's going to get them more money like it's almost that diversity sort of as an economic ploy you know obviously it's it's more palatable to talk about you know with the things like me too and the black lives matter movement it's more palatable to tell those stories now like there's a a bigger onus on companies to tell those stories you know we sort of the buying power of women and minorities is a lot more clear now i feel whereas before i feel like marvel didn't necessarily need that audience at all i don't know is that very cynical i think you've got a point and I'm I'm pretty cynical as well, mm-hmm. so like maybe Evelyn can can mm-hmm. can, uh, can counter <laughs> yeah. us here. But um, like the films have consistently basically been like the top uh, highest grossing mm-hmm. films every year. It's not really like they need to appeal to these audiences to make money, but I think that it just makes sense to do so. You know, and this is something we talked about in class when we like in our debate is that like if you have this audience and it's so massive and it's so big and like you know, and these issues are relevant, it is a perfect opportunity to cash in on that kind of social discourse that's going around. But also, like, that's the cynical side of it, but the the kind of less cynical side is, like, it's also the perfect opportunity to create a more broad understanding and awareness mm. around those issues because this it's just such, like, a universal genre that if these people are going to be paying to watch it anyway, mm. why not 
really try and, and, and say something through that. And I think I felt that really shone through in the Falcon and the Winter Soldier. WandaVision less so, but mm. I, when I think about it, yes. But Falcon and the Winter Soldier, I thought really, obvious, yeah. really, you know, very obviously went in with that and in in a very successful way, I thought. Mm-hmm, definitely. Yeah. I really loved the fact that you sort of, again, spoilers for the Falcon and the Winter Soldier, but I loved, you know, the conversation with Sam and... I don't know if he was a member of the GRC or something like that towards the end that was very much sort of positioned in, in real life and it felt like it mirrored a lot of things that were applicable to today. And, and you're right, like they have such a huge audience that it'd be such a missed opportunity to not sort of convey different messages. And I think that's just because like entertainment in general is becoming more political. Like there's a, a sort of a greater social responsibility. I even notice, like even as a female viewer, like obviously, yes, there's, you know, people love that when you see superheroes, they're, buff and built and attractive whatever and look I love Chris Evans as much as the next person but I feel like seeing different people who look different you know even like if you think of Ant-Man again like he's not necessarily super buff or super this or that I'm really curious to sort of see like studies in later years like how that sort of has impacted on like body image or or self-esteem because obviously like there is discourse about how women experience it because the only sort of representation we have is Scarlett Johansson, who's put up as the pinnacle of womanhood. But, you know, men have been sitting with Marvel for much longer and have a lot more representation to contend with. I'm curious to know what your experiences or what your sort of thoughts on that is and if we even think, like, that will evolve over the years in terms of what a superhero looks like because obviously you need to be physically strong, but I guess just an awareness of that. I'll answer that and then I have a question for you. Mm-hmm. So I've always obviously looked at those people in an aspirational way because obviously the Chris Evans and the Hugh Jackmans and the Chris Hemsworths are all these amazing looking human beings. But I find that there's, you know, like I can separate myself from the fantasy that is these films. Like this is their job, right? Like they've got personal trainers, nutritionists, there's medical people helping them. You know, they're on all sorts of steroids and all this stuff and they it's it's their it's part of their job, you know, a part of the budget is going mm-hmm. to making these people look the way they do for their roles. You know, not not to say that all of them are unnaturally have obtained that physique, but you know, very few of them I think maintain it past the point of shooting and you know you hear stories like Henry Cavill on The Witcher mm. um, and the way he dehydrated himself for, for, for days yeah. leading up and it's just like you know it, it's impossible like unless I was an actor of that high profile and I was in a film like that it's unattainable to look like this perfect human being and as you said like not all of them are these perfect people like you've got characters like Ant-Man or Doctor Strange mm. who are not necessarily like conventionally attractive yeah. people I don't know like for me it's not super difficult to separate myself from that but what I've found is that there's a lot of people who relate to it's it's almost like an attitude thing that I think mm-hmm. people relate to a lot more and and people really enjoy the kind of snarky Tony Stark sort of mm-hmm. attitude of being really dismissive and cracking jokes and being like a playboy and that sort of thing and a lot of people are concerning a number a number of people relate to the Joker as a, mm-hmm. as a character as a comic book character I want to hear your thoughts on that. Super, super concerning. I feel like experiences of social like alienation are really important to discuss because I feel like it's not, that's not something that we talk about as a society. It's not normal if you don't have friends. It's normal to be single, but if you don't have friends or if you're perceived as weird, like that's, you know, that's still, there's a lot of stigma around that. But I feel like so much airtime given to people who sort of externalize their rage they feel like they've been hard done in some way and so rather than dealing with that or seeking justice they take it out on innocent people and obviously that's to sort of code them as a villain but I just think it's I can't help but compare that to sort of the way that we police the responses of people from I don't want to say legitimate marginalized communities but from other um, marginalized communities in the sense of, you know, I my mind goes back to the Black Lives Matter movement and sort of the whole discourse that erupted trying to legitimize whether or not rioting or protesting was a valid response to institutionalized, you know, racism and police brutality and how so many people are constantly trying to tell black people, oh my gosh, peaceful protest is the only valid way to respond. But then you sort of have these movies where male violence and male rage is so unchallenged there's not really a counter narrative provided and I feel like that's a very and when I say male I mean like a very specific hyper masculine identity because obviously not everybody is like that but I think I think there needs to be 
a, a balance between obviously showing these stories because they are entertaining and there's stuff to take away from them, but then also realizing like because people don't watch this shit critically, like we need to be responsible in how we tell them. I would actually argue that characters like Tony Stark did far more damage than the Joker ever did. Interesting. In terms of insult culture. Because they're not trying to emulate the Joker. They're trying to emulate Tony Stark. When mm. people, when they want even their male characters who are just obviously coded as being abusive towards vulnerable people, they want them to be abusive in a way that might be fun to emulate. So mm. there was a lot of discourse around Birds of Prey that a lot of the male characters to this particularly to, to this particular group in the fandom weren't engaging and they didn't really like them. They thought they were weak and that was just because they were shown as thugs. They weren't shown as cool or mm. something that would be fun to emulate. So people emulating particularly Phase 1 Tony Stark, mm. I think would be far more scary than the people who are trying to emulate Joker who actually tried to talk about things a little bit more critically than Iron Man 1 ever did. Yeah, definitely. Like, a very important part of Tony's journey from his first series of films is, like, overcoming that arrogance and becoming more selfless, you know, to the point where he literally sacrificed... And spoilers for Endgame, right? If you haven't seen it mm-hmm. um, at this point, it's kind of a lost yeah. cause. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> um, you know, he literally sacrifices himself to save the world, which is pretty out of character for Tony Stark in those first couple of appearances of his. Um, and he asked Pepper's permission to do so. Exactly, yeah. But it's definitely done an amount of harm because at the end of the day, Tony's still the hero, mm-hmm. right? The Joker has never yeah, really been the hero of the story. Even though in the in the latest film he is the protagonist, it's much easier to identify him as the villain, mm-hmm. but it's like a sympathetic one. And it's strange because I don't, I don't know what you think about this, but a lot of those people who he finds himself rejected by or confronted with tends to be like people of color. Mm. I don't know if you've noticed yeah, that. Yeah, like there's yeah. a lot of people of mm. color in those films. But yeah, I'm interested to, to, to hear what yeah. you think because I, I feel like there's some racial commentary in there, yeah. but I'm not really sure yeah. what it is. Yeah, it was weird. It was set, was it set in the 80s or mm-hmm. something? Yeah, the time in which it was set, there was such a huge narrative of sort of New York being this bustling place of crime and a lot of people at the time tried to pin it exclusively on like the sort of like overpopulation of black communities as well which is really interesting and so I think it was a interesting choice to sort of like you said have a lot of the um not villains a lot of the aggressors be people from that community as well again I'm always interested in like hierarchies because obviously like his experiences were legitimate you know what I mean none of them are nice or fun but it's like instead of I don't know looking at in terms of okay well if that's oppressing this man imagine sort of I guess the more deeper complex issues and the people who are experiencing that but I think it it was a very interesting director's choice I think it made it when you put things like that people internalize them and they're not sure why and so I think it very much fits with the narrative especially in New York that crime um, is synonymous with black so I think it's a it's very interesting those small choices the impact that they subconsciously have as a viewer if you're not sort of critically analyzing them and going oh what's the sort of racial connotations there I wonder how different people yeah I think a lot of people struggled with interpreting that film because Mm. I've heard people say that it doesn't really it's not really trying to Mm. say anything about anything like it's just this story about mm-hmm. the Joker and that's mm-hmm. it and, it and about Gotham City and about, you know, the spiral downfall of a character. Mm-hmm. But it's I just don't really know how you can say that mm-hmm. when it's it's really obvious that there's comments about mental illness and about the separation between like the, you know, the poor and the wealthy mm-hmm. and that sort of stuff. And that's what I think is a bit scary. But definitely. Yeah. I don't know. Um, yeah. it's, it's always been like that with the Joker. Mm-hmm. We give a lot of time, airtime to people who feel like they have lost something because they see other white guys, for example, with power and they don't have it. And so they feel sort of marginalized in that way and take it out on other people as opposed to sort of the airtime we give to people who sort of never had power, if that makes sense. Like it's such a different response. I feel like people who never had power or had more institutionalized marginalization 
it's so much more about community building and lifting people up and it's it's a much more um, policed response, I think. Whereas people who see, actually I can have access to this power, but I don't and that pisses me off. I'm really fascinated by that and how differently the responses are to that from audiences than I guess if it was other more marginalized communities. Does that make sense? I think so. Um, and I think I kind of understand, like we see this sort of stuff coming out of the States and especially mm. in the last year. And it's not impossible to understand these mm. people because in a way they feel like they should be entitled to these mm. like amazing wealthy lifestyles mm. and you know power and things that other people who look like them have mm. and who they've been watching on TV have and that here you are and you're this poor or you know you haven't had this success in your life and you can't really get up and complain about it because you're a white guy and it's like well what's the next step you know it's violence and Mm -hmm. and anger and and stuff like that. I always think about this quote from a book called Salt by Nayira Wahid, and she said, if we wanted to, people of color could burn the world down for what we have experienced, are experiencing, but we don't. How stunningly beautiful that our sacred respect for the earth, for life is deeper than our rage. For me, it just hits so many punches because it's you never see those people being the aggressors. You know, we don't necessarily, we don't have a Joker film, I don't, at least that I know of, that is, you know, someone from that community who sort of we would completely understand where they're coming from it, it's so much of the time it's people who feel disempowered because they actually should have access to that power systemically but they don't obviously that is a valid experience in itself but i just think it's i don't know that quote sits with me so i don't know if it resonates with anybody else yeah i mean like when you think about not not so much the joker because i guess the joke has always been like a you know, mm-hmm. he's, a, he's a white guy, like, you mm-hmm. know, but um, I, another example I can think of is maybe like Killmonger from Black Panther, mm. you know, someone who is part of that more marginalized community. And that that's really what drives him. And what is kind of beautiful about that film is that, you know, it's very easy to see where he's coming from. He really has a point. And by the end of the film, he's really changed the protagonist and he changes the protagonist's approach to you know, his attitudes towards the world and his his view of the world. But it's the approach that's different, right? Because obviously Killmonger employs like the violence and the mm. anarchy and that sort of, the you know, the war and stuff. Whereas T'Challa's more diplomatic and, you know, working with other people and nations and things. And that's mm. what we see by the end of the film. And he set up an embassy in mm. his, in, in uh, the old neighborhood of where Killmonger grew up. But, you know, at least there he's got an opposing force, right? It's like, here's two ways of doing it, and then one of them's right and one of them's wrong. You don't really get that mm. in Joker, you know? I mean, you get it in, like, The Dark Knight, for example, where you've got Batman and the Joker and that dichotomy, and mm. usually you have that. You just didn't have that in this latest film, mm. but it, it ended up being more of a character study, and, and mm. it, the, the ambiguity of it, I think, is what makes it more volatile as a film, whereas Black Panther... The Dark Knight, whatever. Mm. It's it's just a bit more clear cut, mm. and it's it's saying like we get you, but we don't agree with yes. how yeah. you're going about this. You know, they did a very similar thing in Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Mm. I mean, I know Carly is, you know, she's a refugee essentially, which mm. is a kind Definitely. of marginalized person, and um, her approach to that and stopping a vote from going through that was her. It's it's a very selfless and and righteous um, motive, and and we understand her. And again, it's the same thing as by the end of it her wish is going through but it's not going through the way that she intended she hasn't no more people are going to die now it's like but sam understood her and that was something i thought was absolutely fascinating about the show was like again the dichotomy between the two approaches of john walker and sam you know a couple of those really really highlighted moments where sam would come in and he would just have a discussion with her and he would really try and understand her and get to the bottom of what she wants how she thinks and how we can solve this without any more people getting hurt and then in comes john walker captain america and he's all brute force and he's bashing people and he's scared and he scares her off and he just makes things worse right so it's like that tough approach is not always the answer to things you know and that's part of it, like that anger and that, you know, brute force of mm. we've got to solve things this way and instead of trying to be a bit more diplomatic. And, mm. you know, even Carly had that issue is she tried to solve things with actions, right? But it's because no one was listening to her. And only once Sam had that mantle of Captain America that he could convey that message to the world and, and make people listen and, and make people understand better. And he, he ended up doing it, right? Mm. She got what she wanted, essentially. Yeah, it was. I really um, thought it was interesting that they had in the Falcon and the Winter Soldier showing 
Sam representing alternative ways of dealing with conflict. And obviously that's not to say that all superhero conflicts need to end in them sort of hugging or having a conversation. But I think so much for me watching the Marvel films has been coded in sort of dominance. Like even if you think of, you know, Tony Stark, even though he might not be sort of using his physical strength, he has dominance over people because of his money and his stance. Like either way, each character sort of wins their battle somehow because of the way that they can exert power over different communities. It was really interesting with John Walker showing how in that situation that was not the right way to handle it. Actually sort of leveling with someone and having empathy and putting yourself in that position is a really sort of attractive and and valuable thing. And, you know, we sort of spoke about this. Like, I think it was really amazing that you got to see Bucky and, and Sam having a conversation that was vulnerable and you see therapy and you see all these things that I think are typically coded as not masculine being done by people that we've all agreed are masculine because they're in superhero films. Um, and having, you know, Bucky admit that he didn't understand what it would be like for Sam because he was a black man, sort of having those very vulnerable and specific conversations, not alluding to things, I thought was a really powerful departure from male gaze storytelling. I feel like Sam's discussion in The Falcon and the Winter Soldier felt so much more genuine and authentic and grounded. Yeah, because they kind of built to it, Mm -hmm. you know? It wasn't like out of nowhere after he killed her or whatever. Mm -hmm. He was really, really trying Mm -hmm. constantly throughout the show to Mm -hmm. get through to her and have those conversations even at the end before she was killed and she was mad like she was mm. beating the crap out of him and he was just like he, he didn't like she was begging him to fight back you mm. know and he just wouldn't do it and that's like that really righteous captain america spirit mm. that i think is really good for the character like mm. I, I don't know i just i really really like that you know that let's use our words instead mm. of our and th- and that's that's something like the shield is representative of it's not an offensive item it's not like a gun and i know like sam has always been kind of a gun person like Mm -hmm. you know we do see him using guns a lot even at the start of this show he's shooting Mm -hmm. people but you know we we see john walker weaponize that shield in a Mm -hmm. i mean it's always been a very a weaponized thing Mm -hmm. throwing it around but he really he kills someone with it and you know just there's so many callbacks to those earlier captain america moments like Mm -hmm. in civil war when he's got it up and he's about to bash tony and he just you know, jams it in his chest and shuts the suit Mm. down instead of killing him because that's the right thing to do, you know, like, I'm just using this to essentially defend myself. Mm. And Sam's taking that to another level of, like, I'm not... This shield is... is I, I feel like very representative of, of the way he was dealing with things in this show and, the, the, you know, he, using his words rather than his weapons. Mm, definitely. Yeah. I think it's a really exciting thing and I'm sure people have their own problems with it but to see that sort of Captain America the person that is meant to represent America's ideals is so much the antithesis of I guess how the American climate has been in the last couple of years I think that's really exciting I don't know and maybe that was just more because they had more time to do that or they were showing different ways or it was specific to that those characters but I think the show did a really great job at demonstrating two very specific types of masculinity I know that you're super interested by John Walker so I'd love to hear your thoughts on him yeah I mean What's been really interesting thing of the last couple of years of the the whole Marvel storytelling is because this is such a massive universe and you have these groundbreaking events like the Thanos snap and the blip and all that sort of thing. It's like the, just the dealing with the consequences of these sort of massive things um, and how it trickles down and just affects your, your average person. It's, it's like these TV shows are a good opportunity to explore them. And even in the Netflix Marvel shows, we see a, quite a bit of that in the, the fallout of the first Avengers film and how that kind of ravaged New York and kind of citizens dealing with these corporations trying to buy their, their properties and, and all this sort of things like in Daredevil and, and the kind of consequences that the Avengers, it's, like, it's just like little things that affect people that you just don't see. And then going further into these other shows, it's the same thing and the the whole trauma of that whole infinity war arc and you know it's massive like you can't just dismiss this thing about millions of people reappearing back into the world like half the world's population just reappear like after five years of them going and it's like that 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 would be a really massive issue and there would be people with all sorts of opinions about it and them struggling all these characters struggling with those consequences and, and you know bucky dealing with the trauma of his days as the winter soldier and and coming to terms with people and coming, you know, giving people closure. You've got that moment in Wakanda where he's like fully crying, you know, and you just don't really see that. And, and I mean, I know you mentioned he goes to counseling, but I don't really know how, how effective that, uh, Mm. I know like he goes there, but she Mm. gives him a very 
macho response you yeah, know as someone very, yeah. as someone who was in the military herself she gives him that kind mm. of like just man up sort of yeah yeah i don't like that which was um i think intentional because mm. it's like this is how they've kind of been dealing with this mm. stuff so far and now how do they eventually get over it is mm. that they just talk you know mm. like they just have conversations as he said like they had that discussion about mm. picking up the shield and how as a black guy like he could never really mm. understand that you know because he's not black or mm. just those conversations that they were having Mm. when they were training as well like you know they're just talking Mm. it out and that's what i really like about sam as captain america and and it's that maturity of approaching things like and it shows how the character of captain america has evolved Mm. as well it used to be like american values brute force and we crushed the enemy and world war ii and all this stuff and then steve rogers is like the perfect guy because he's so righteous and he believes in the right things and he wants to help people and he's you know all of these amazing traits and but it's it's evolved now and we're kind of at a point where it's less brute force and it's more diplomacy and you know mm. i think i think sam if i remember correctly his background is as a yeah as some sort yeah. of counselor yeah. or something like that and, and seeing him it it just feels right mm. as his character and and like i i watched this with my family and my brother was like all into the fight scenes and when the big climactic moment of the last episode is sam having a, a 10 minute or five mm. minute monologue to these politicians he was like what is going on here like mm-hmm. i want to see some action i yeah. want to see someone throw down and i was like well i don't know like this is my favorite part of the show mm. just hearing really the discussions there and and seeing them really lean into those themes and commit to them and not just like skimp around them and you know and that's that's i think what people didn't love about captain marvel mm. was just this failure to really address those themes and go yeah. in hard if you just look at trends and mm. Rotten Tomatoes, IMDb, whatever, you'll see like the shows and the films that take those themes about, you know, marginalized people like women and, and black people and all this stuff, you know, and, and this is something that it just hits with audiences. Like people really love it versus Captain Marvel, which is a shallow sort of attempt to mm. address that stuff. And, you know, Black Panther and One Division, all these things, it's just much better. And, and even the Falcon and the Winter Soldier, because you can feel when it's endearing. Mm. You can feel when they really put that effort and they wanted to say something, mm. you know? And I felt like that has really shone through. And it's, it's, I like that. Even if it's not like movie quality or whatever, mm. like it's still using this platform of, mm. of the superhero genre to say something and to create understanding. Because, you know, I could never begin to understand those experiences because I'm not black and I'm not a woman, Mm. but through those things, I can start to kind of empathize with those people. filmmakers because I think it's a really it's a really tricky one especially because like I feel like you almost can't win in the sense of you know if we're sort of told in a way don't represent people who you're not a part of their community but then also people who sort of throw in casual diversity in a way that feels tokenistic also get criticized and so I love seeing own voice stories because I just think like people's perspectives are so so I, I just think it's so hard to tell a story outside of your own perspective, but I also think we should be able to do that because otherwise we end up in a position where if we can only tell our own stories, well, then we can't criticize every white straight male for only writing about white straight males. So it's, exactly. it's, it's I don't know how you get around that. Um, yeah. In wanting to tell stories as well, I have no clue. I don't really know because I think the optimal thing, like in a perfect world, if you look at like this new Shang-Chi Marvel mm. film coming out, that's got a full Asian cast and uh, the director is an Asian guy as well. And that's perfect. Like good on them for, you know, really allowing them to kind of tell their own, like mm. that, that Western Asian combination. And it's again, like this is what we're saying. It's like, this is a Marvel film. So it's going to appeal to, uh, not just Asian people, but people who are not part of that mm. community and, and just o- general audiences of Marvel. But can we really do that in every instance? Mm. You know, can we really make sure that that's being done every time? I don't really know if we can. I mean, say you want to cast a lead actor, like the best audition it happens to be someone who is black. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't think that's necessarily tokenistic if you just have those characters mm. there. Yeah. If you're like, oh, we can only have a black guy play this role, then 
you know, and he's just like a side character or whatever, and we just need that for diversity. That's when you're getting into like <laughs> like the black best friend in Marvel. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. when you're getting into like that tokenism yeah. territory. And it's funny because I almost thought that that would be explored in the Falcon mm, and the Winter Soldier. Mm. How you've got that. Um, I think his name's his superhero name is Battlestar, mm. the guy who gets killed. Yeah. Um, I thought that there would be some sort of mention of mm. how he's the sidekick, mm. you know, while Sam is like the partner, mm. or they're mm. they're just partners. Mm. No one's really in charge. But yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I think if you can come up with that context, that allows things to happen in, in a sensible way. It's not the worst thing. But if you're getting into like I'm going to tell a story about the Black Lives Matter protests of 2020 and I'm a white guy and I know no black people. Like, mm. how how am I... Like, that is not somewhere that no. you should go. You know, I think it depends how far in you go with that and how much of your own experience really relates mm-hmm. to that, you know? Definitely. And I think that while I have no idea of the solution, I think that the more opportunities we give to people to tell that you know if there was an equal sort of playing field for people to tell stories in general then i think it wouldn't feel like representation was so scarce or like one filmmaker had to do or represent everyone with one movie you know what i mean like if we just get more people behind the camera then you know i feel like that would help even the playing field absolutely yeah i think yeah i think hollywood is a bit of a fortress Mm. um, and breaking into filmmaking is not the easiest thing I will tell you, as someone who's spoken to people who are quite high up in the industry, the Hollywood industry, that nobody even in the industry knows where the line is. Like, no one can tell when they've officially broken in. It's all so nebulous. (laughs) The rules are so tacit. And I think as long as you're writing characters that feel real and complex, Mm. no one's really going to complain about it. A character's only token if they don't have any interiority. Mm. Right? Seeing as we introduced this episode with a would you rather question, I would love for you to leave one for our next guest to answer. All right, so my question is, in the context of of today's episode, would you rather have been snapped out of existence for five years and then brought back in the blip, or would you have rather just lived throughout those five years with half of the world's population gone? Boom. Have fun with that next guest. You've been listening to Tender Rage with Sunny Adcock, featuring guest Adan Kotson as we unpack the social power on display in modern superhero media. Follow him at IKAnimatics on Instagram. For more content, follow us on at Tender Rage Podcast on Instagram. Tender Rage is an original production written and directed by yours truly, Sunny Adcock, co-produced and edited by Evelyn DuBose, who also did the music you're listening to right now. Thank you so much for tuning into the space. Get keen for more exciting episodes coming your way.